Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. And the question I like to force people to ask themselves is what can they afford to do for me? So you can remove the guilt and think, I'm not trying to bankrupt them. I'm just asking myself, what can they afford to do? How high or how low can they afford to go for me specifically? This is The Real Bottom Line where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Well, welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, I am joined by the fabulous Fotini Iconopoulos, who is a negotiation expert. Welcome, Fotini, to the show. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you here because I think of uh, entrepreneurs, I think of life in general, and negotiation is everywhere, whether you want to realize it or not. But I'd like to backtrack a little bit and talk about your entrepreneur journey first. How did you end up working for yourself and doing the things that you do? I like to tell people it was acts of purpose <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's better. Um, I, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. If you've ever seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, that is my life. So we never went home after school. We went to whatever restaurant we had and sat in the kitchen until it was time to close like that. I grew up in that and thought, I'm never going to work for myself. This whole holidays and weekends and all this stuff. We didn't have a life because that was yeah. work was life. There was no, no one else who was going to be able to lock the doors at the end of the night. And so I went and I went and got my MBA and I said, I'm going to join the corporate world. And, and it was really cool until it wasn't. Um, and then I decided to quit my job. I was working in a consulting firm and I just decided I needed a change and I had no plan, which was unusual for me. Uh, but I also knew I had lots of clients who had said, hey, when you quit, I want to be your first phone call. So I knew I would land somewhere if I wanted to. I just needed a break. Yeah. And it was the clients who just kept calling and saying, so when are you going to come back and work for us? And I said, well, I don't work for the company anymore. And, um, and they said, well, we didn't hire the company. We hired Fotini. Right. And so that was, I thought, okay, well, I'll just do this favor for a client who'd become a friend. Mm -hmm. And then that led to another favor and another one. And, and I thought, I'll just do this till I have to get a real job. And, it's been <laughs> seven years. Um, and now I can comfortably call it a real job. <laughs> such a great story. Um, when you think about what has been your biggest win on this journey so far? Oh, I'd say that's a tough one. I would say the book has been a really big win mm. for me. And it's because I didn't, I didn't drive it. So everything has fallen so organically. Um, I've been putting out value into the universe for as long as I can remember. So I would connect with clients and on LinkedIn and go, oh, what can I share with them that's going to keep them, you know, keep their negotiation skills nice and high. And so I would share these articles and that started to accumulate an audience um, outside yeah. of the people that I just knew. So thousands of people started following my, my feed. And then that attracted the speaker spotlight folks who then engaged me and started getting me more speaking gigs. And then somebody from HarperCollins saw me on a website somewhere and went, 
well, that's a name I recognize for some reason. People I know have been talking about her and they called me up and they said, we think you have a book in you. And I was like, okay. So it just felt like that culmination of I'd been doing so much stuff that people were noticing. And I went, oh, well, this is a really unique opportunity. And I, and I think that's when it all clicked for me that this doesn't happen for everybody this way. And so I right. felt pretty accomplished in being able to do that. I will say um, of all the books that I know that are either coming out or whatever, there's very few that are with publishers. Most people are going the self-published route just um, because they're not getting asked, you know? So yeah. That they did, yeah, so that's very exciting. What has been your hardest lesson so far? The hardest lesson is you have to say no sometimes. Ooh. So I had a gangbusters year my first year because I was so uncertain about what my future would be that I just said yes to everything. There was any opportunity that came up, I was going to say yes to it because who knew when the next dollar would come in. I was learning this whole entrepreneurial thing. I witnessed it from my parents and the ups and downs that came with that. And then uh, after that first year, I was so burnt out, even though I love what I'm doing and I love my clients and I get to choose for the most part, my clients. Um, I, I realized that you really just, you need to be very careful because ever since then, I feel like I'm still trying to find my balance and that harmony of too much and too little. And keeping your health, right? Cause I think yeah. that we sometimes as entrepreneurs forget about our health. Yeah. Until, and I, you know, we can't with, with COVID hitting the way it did, I didn't realize what a toll I was putting on my body until I stayed home for the first time. Cause I've been a road warrior for over a decade and getting right. on it and I still love it and I miss it terribly. But it wasn't until I physically slowed down without having to, you know, run through airports and, and be on the go that I realized, oh, my body needed this. It needed a, a break. Hmm. I'd like to transition into negotiation. And I think that um, I'd like, I know you have some great stories around why it's important to negotiate. And I think back to a conversation we had a few years ago with regards to uh, women coming out of MBAs and negotiating their first job and the, and their and their salary and I know it's a little different than in the entrepreneurial world but really there's a lot of parallels there um, that are faced so but there's a price that can be put on not negotiating yeah so I tell people all the time I've been negotiating since childhood and when I think about all of the opportunities that I've had I've negotiated every single job offer every single um, promotion, every single mortgage, property purchase, home theater system, car, you name it, I've been negotiating everything. And when I tally all of those up, according to this study that was done, when they looked at, they, they said back in 2003, the numbers have shifted slightly in terms of who's been negotiating, but back in 2003, only 7% of women negotiated their first salary and 57% of men did. So, and they also found that those who did actually negotiate increased their offer by an average of 7.4%. And then another study took that number and they went, okay, let's look at those who did negotiate and those who didn't. Let's give them the same salary increases and the same promotions for the next 35 years. The only difference is that first singular 7.4% bump. And when they looked at those numbers, they found those who did negotiate get to retire eight years earlier eight years of a difference I know you understand what that means <laughs> and, and I love my job and I yeah. still love to retire eight years earlier and when I look at all of the opportunities that I've been doing outside of just that one single job promotion I have to estimate that I've managed to acquire over 20 years of early retirement 
And I think about that for others and I go, they're just throwing them away. They're going, I'm too scared of, or what if, instead of exploring what could uh, in those scenarios. I love that language. You made it, you dropped an interesting line there that I want to pick up on. Who is negotiating? Tell me more about that. I would say it's often mostly men who are negotiating. That's not to say that women aren't. I do think if we we were to redo that study today, the numbers would be quite different in terms of women negotiating as well. However, the biggest challenge is that we are still treated differently in negotiations. So women and not just just women, but but minorities or less dominant groups um, are being treated differently when it comes to negotiation. So it's one thing to actually finally have the nerve to do it. And it's another thing to be received in a way in which is most appropriate. So women are often facing the backlash. They're facing those uh, perceptions of being considered greedy or bitchy or aggressive and all of those things. So part of my mission is to help everyone feel as though they have the tools to do it without those labels. Um, There are ways to mitigate the risk of those things happening. And so until people realize what those tools are, they're gonna keep holding back because it's a very real fear of of consequences. Do you have any favorite stories about uh, negotiation and an outcome that was maybe better than expected or, you know, they were scared, they went in and then they achieved stuff? Oh, there's so many because I'm, I'm so fortunate in that um, so I, I teach MBA cl- uh, students from time to time. I've been taking a bit of a hiatus lately, but I have so many of them reaching out to me on a regular basis, sharing their success stories because they all want to be a success story because I've included so many of them in my book. They're like, I'm going to be your next success story. Um, <laughs> but just last week, I was doing a podcast for um, for a couple of women who were actually out of Halifax, ironically, uh, who were running a podcast. And one of them I knew and she, and I'd done work with her before. And the other one had not met me yet, but she said, she told me, she's like, I knew you were coming on the show. And I had this opportunity where I was being evicted because my landlord wanted to move. So I had 28 days to pick, pick up my oh, life wow. and change it. And she said, I wanted to negotiate, but I didn't want to negotiate. But then I thought, but Fotini's coming on the show. I can't tell her I didn't negotiate. (laughs) And so (laughs) she pushed back and she managed to get thousands of dollars as a result of listening to some of the tips that I had given in the past on other platforms. Um, And so that was one of the funniest ones to me. It was like just the idea, the halo effect of knowing I'm going to have to talk to Fotini and I want to have a really good story to share with her, Um, which is awesome (laughs) to me. Well, uh, it means you're changing lives, Sotini. That's the beauty of it. I certainly hope so. That's the mission. That's awesome. Um, When you think about, uh, I want to talk about tactics now. And if I'm in the buying position, is there a different set of tactics than if I'm in the selling position? Not necessarily. So I train folks all the time. And actually, I just had a workshop yesterday with some clients in a manufacturing facility, a manufacturing company where half of them were buying buying raw material supplies for their product. Mm -hmm. And half of them were selling the finished product to retailers like Target and Walmart and so on. And the the workshop they went through was exactly the same. But we we did talk about some of the nuances. Um, But the principles remain the same, whether you're a buyer or a seller. It may feel more natural to you to be the one that goes first if you are the seller or if you are the buyer. But even that can be flipped on its head when we think about the context. Um, And so I wouldn't say that the principles change at all. As somebody who has 
trained a ton of buyers in the retail space and a ton of sellers in the manufacturing space and loads of other spaces as well. I, I really don't think it makes any difference because the truth is at some point we all sell. So we are selling ourselves. We are selling our, our position. We are selling, um, you know, I, I want you to come along with my ideas. And that is what we are naturally doing. And actually there's a great book called To Sell is Human by a gentleman named Daniel Pink. Mm -hmm. and, and that is what we do. So we go into sales mode constantly, whether you have a product or service, you're trying to sell your idea most of the time. And that's why the principles really truly remain the same. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, when you think then of how, if I looked at a, the preparation for a, a negotiation session, I know something's coming up. I'm uh, talking to somebody and I either want to sell or buy something. How do I prepare? So what you need to do is think about first and foremost, what am I trying to get out of this? And the question I like to force people to ask themselves is what can they afford to do for me? So you can remove the guilt and think I'm not trying to bankrupt them. I'm just asking myself, what can they afford to do? How high or how low can they afford to go for me specifically? So what do you want to get out of it? Is it just price? Is there something more to it? Is it timing? Is it quality? Is it service levels? Like whatever your circumstance, what are all of those objectives you want to accomplish? Then the most important part and most often overlooked part is what are they trying to get out of it? So looking at the other side of the table, so to speak. Exactly. So flip it around for a second, put yourself in their shoes and go, what are they trying to get out of it? What are their objectives? What challenges are they facing? What pressures are they facing? The moment you can take yourself out of your own fears and your own pressures and put yourself into theirs, that is valuable information. That is mm. power because we are so consumed with our fears that we get so insular that we forget about, well, there's another person that is in this process. And if I could just think about the fact that they are desperate to sell this product to me, or they are desperate to get their hands on whatever it is that I'm selling, then that will make me feel much more powerful and I'll be able to get much better results. I think that's interesting because you, you talk about feeling powerful. And I, I believe that's another word almost for confidence to some degree. Yeah. And um, how do you, so you the, the number one way from the sounds of what you're saying is to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Are there any other ways to that you use to go when you go into a negotiation that you to get yourself more pumped up? Yeah, there one of my one of my favorite studies kind of leads me down this path. And in 20 in a 2013 Harvard study, they took people and made them sing a song in front of a group. They made them sing journeys don't stop believing. And I mean, for me, you know, put me in a karaoke position and I'll grab the mic and I'll do whatever I need to do. But I understand that that can be quite fearful for a lot of folks. So what they, what they found was they put them into one of three groups and they told one group, tell yourself, regardless of how you're actually feeling, tell yourself, I am anxious. They told another group, tell yourself, I am excited. And they told the last group, just say nothing at all. And what they found is the group that told themselves, I am excited ended up, according to a computer that measured volume and pitch, ended up outperforming the other two group. And it wasn't just about vocal abilities. They outperformed them on a math test and on a speech test. Just so, by saying, well, I'm excited and talking just yourself by, up. Yeah, just by telling themselves, regardless if they were scared out of their minds, they told themselves, I'm excited. And they managed to take themselves out of a fear mindset and into an opportunity mindset. And as a result, they changed their cognitive abilities. They freaking changed their brains by just telling themselves that. And so my advice to most people and something I do all the time is I go, 
this is an opportunity. I'm excited about sharing with someone the information that I have. I am excited about learning more about the other person. I am excited about seeing what can transpire when two people have a conversation. And that can be so powerful in just psyching yourself up instead of psyching yourself out. It feels like you open yourself up a little bit more too, where I feel like fear sometimes closes us in and maybe we're not, like you said, we're, we're not as agile in our minds because we're in, embedded in fear, in, embedded in fear. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, when you say, I want to, I'm going to buy myself a, a Toyota Camry. And all of a sudden you walk down the street and you go, I'm, all I'm seeing these days is Toyota Camrys. Like you're, you're seeing them because you're making your mind more open to them. And the same is true when you say, I'm going to find some opportunities here and you'll be able to spot them. But if you say, I am fearful and I don't know what's going to happen and I, and I don't want to, and I don't want to do this, it, all the doors are going to be closed in front of you. And it's going to be really hard to get outside of that. What do you, how do you counsel folks who maybe um, have tied up their personal worth in the ask that they're making for their price tag? Do you know what I mean? When you think of entrepreneurs who in particular are selling services or something like that, um, where they're delivering the service as well, um, you know, how do you help them get over or do you, is it just something, how would you advise someone who's like, this is what I think it's worth. Uh, that it has that value, but I'm constantly end up selling it down here. Yeah. One of the things that helps in terms of that preparedness that we talked about earlier is doing your homework. So what is the value of that skill or whatever it is that you're selling on the market? And when you start to see that, that credible source of other people out there who are selling something similar or parallel, when you start to, to see that you're going to go, oh, well, why am I selling myself? short if if other people if they're willing to pay for it someone else I, I just had somebody talk to me about this and there's a lot of imposter syndrome that's what's driving so much of well what if they don't what if I don't live up to those expectations I had a woman who told me she I don't know she does some type of coaching business and she said somebody else spent a lot more money on one of her competitors who charges way more than she does and so that that customer was unsatisfied and therefore sought her out and she said, but I, I felt uncomfortable asking for a certain amount of money because what if I don't live up to that value? And I said, well, why then is she talking to you? Why are they here right now speaking to you, giving you the time of day? Well, it's because they got a referral and so on. Okay, so somebody thinks you have that value. If you don't think you have that value, then we have a problem. And then the other thing is, how much budget do you think she has to spend? If she could afford to spend it on somebody else who's not as good as you, who clearly didn't give her a great experience, why in the heck wouldn't she be willing to spend that much with you? And she went, oh, and why shouldn't she? It was one of those things where you just sometimes you need an outside perspective to go, <laughs> there's, there's value here in what I do. If they'd spend it for somebody else, why wouldn't they spend it for me? And so doing that research and seeing what others are doing kind of emboldens you a little bit to go, okay, well, if they're doing it, why would I be less than that? Right. That's fascinating. Okay. So we're all prepared. We're excited. We see the opportunities. How do we open the discussion or how do you feel like, is there a journey that map that we should try and follow or, uh, you know, and tactics and things that we should be doing Fatini uh, during the actual conversation? Generally speaking, I mean, the title of the book is say less, get more for a reason. <laughs> so I would say stick to that principle in general. What you can do before you even make a proposal, though, is you might want to open with some type of what we call positioning statements in negotiation, which means position yourself for success. 
you know, say something off the top that's going to remind them of why it is that they're talking to you. So I appreciate you recognizing um, the, the fact that I, my number one performing product, or I appreciate you reaching out for this thing that I know you're, that is going to make your business soar after we're done today. So it's why are they talking to you? And, and a gentle reminder of that will position you for success. Then all it is, is keeping it as simple as possible and saying, the price of this product or the price of this service is this, or if you're in the buying position, I am willing to pay this. It's not, I think maybe basically around in the range of cut out all that extra language and just keep it simple, say less, and you'll get more, a lot, a lot more out of it. Okay. Um, how do you counter objections? So I tell people no is just the start of the negotiation, not the finish. And so our challenge as effective negotiators is to dig a little bit deeper and go, what is the reason behind that objection? So when someone says no, I will say, well, under what circumstances could you make that happen? What would change that answer? Hypothetically speaking, how could we make this work? Ask a question is the lesson here. So start digging in a little bit deeper. Start figuring out what is the motivation behind that answer and what could we do to change it? And literally ask the question, what can we do to change that? How could we make that work? How close can you get to my proposal? Any one of those questions will open up the door and force them to get involved in a conversation with you that is more solution oriented than being able to shut it down. I caution people on asking yes or no questions. That is not what I'm advocating. Because if you ask a yes or no question, that gives them the option to say no and shut everything down. So ask a how or what question. How could we? Under what circumstances? What would change that for you? All of those things will, will help to open up the floodgates for more information and for more problem solving. That's amazing. I love that. Um, okay, so objection handling. Ask more questions. Um, let's let's play. Let's talk about your book a little bit, Fatini. What would you say? Uh, who is this book for? And what are the key lessons? So marketers would kill me for this one, but the book is for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and the reason I say that is be, and because someone at once asked me, they're like, why another negotiation book? And it's because so many people say, you know, they see these titles or they see these authors and they go, that doesn't sound like it fits me. That sounds too intimidating for me, or that's not the type of thing that I do. And so with Say Less, Get More, it's about Say Less, Get More in business and Say Less, Get More in life. Mm. And what I found was so many of the, uh, having been in this space now for over a decade, so much of the advice that I got, I would say, yeah, 80% of that works for me, but the other 20%, I'm not old, I'm not male. And, I, and I'm not, you know, your typical profile of somebody who does this. So that wouldn't work coming out of my mouth. I know that from personal experience, as well as from plenty of studies on the subject. And so what this book aims to do is it aims to be the on-ramp instead of the stairs. The stairs is what the majority of people can use, but everybody can use the on-ramp. So I want it to capture everybody who thinks, well, I don't negotiate, or I don't know how to negotiate, or those, those things that I've read about or heard about before wouldn't work for me. And I'm going, I'm looking for the lowest common denominator. Who are those people who say this won't work for me? And if we find something that accommodates them, then that means it will work for everybody. Right. Um, you talked about life. And I often think about um, all the people on the call or listening that are parents. And I feel like um, with children, depend, especially that they're negotiating all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what advice do you give parents? 
So I would say I've been called the baby whisperer before. <laughs> That's because I don't have children of my own. So I can say that it's very easy to negotiate with children. However, I know that most parents would be like, oh God, no. Um, the reality is they are indeed the best negotiators because they don't have ego in their way. The ego and the and the fear starts to trickle in for little girls around the age of six. For boys, it's a little bit later. And so they're going, I have no inhibition. So why shouldn't I ask for what I want? So we can learn something from them. The challenge for parents is to be credible. And I use children analogies in the boardroom all the time. So if I tell my nieces that, um, you know, if you don't finish that, that broccoli, we're not going to the park and I take them to the park anyway, then they're going to know for the next negotiation that I don't have to do what, what auntie told me to do since she didn't follow through on it. So it's about being credible. And sometimes you want to be that person who gets down to their level and talks to them, who literally crouches down and is eye to eye to them. And other times you want to be authoritative and go, there's no room for negotiation here. This is how it is. And your body language needs to reflect that. And your language needs to reflect that. Not maybe later. It's no, it's not at all. Or it's when you finish that, not if this happens. When you use that language that is much more firm, it makes a world of difference because a child is going to hang on to that maybe for dear life. They're going to see maybe as a yes. So you want to make sure your language is super firm instead of going, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, they're going to go, that's fine. I think it's a great one. But if you say that's not going to happen, that's a very different outcome than I don't think that's a good idea. Isn't that interesting? Um, I, we, we laugh. We had a friend of ours who uh, employed that tactic in training her pets and her <laughs> pets were like the best trained that we'd ever seen in our lives. And I suspect she could, she has taken some lessons from that. I love that because I tell people all the time, people who tell me, I don't negotiate. I'm like, do you have, do you speak to people on a regular basis? Do you get on public transit? You're negotiating for your space. Do you have a, a dog or a pet? Because you are negotiating with them constantly. You might not use regular language, but you're using body language. You're using tone. You're using all of these tools that will help you get what you want. And so that, I mean, that epitomizes everything that I've been talking about for so many years. That, that you make me ask another question then. Now in this era of Zoom, have you changed any of your tactics or the way that you show up for a negotiation session? I wouldn't say that anything has changed. I think we need to pay more attention to the nuances. So we replace things. So I might have had the opportunity live to give a firm handshake. I don't have that here. Mm. So here instead, I might make sure that I'm well lit. So I'm not backlit and in the shadows, because if I'm in the shadows, then there's a there's a subconscious message of do I trust this person? I can't really see their full face. We send a lot of messages without realizing, <clears throat> excuse me, without realizing it. I'm going to make sure that my camera is at eye level and I'm not staring up somebody's nose or they're not staring up mine. So it's, a, it's about being able to look as credible as possible and to sound as credible as possible when we're in these spaces. And that when you are talking to people over Zoom, it takes far more energy than it does when you're live because you don't have that natural energy that comes that you're, mm. that you're kind of bouncing off of people. So I find when I'm teaching on Zoom, I have to inject far more energy and more enthusiasm and more melody almost into my voice because it's very easy for people to tune out and you're competing now with a number of distractions. Any little a notification that pops up on their screen, their phone is maybe out of the screenshot so that you can't see that they're actually on it instead of not looking at you. Um, so all of those things, you need to inject a lot more energy and you need to pay attention to those little details, but the principles remain the same. Okay. Um, top negotiation tip. 
what would you say? Like, what are, no, you know, what is the biggest mistake you see in negotiations? The top negotiation tip is to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And I I mean, I say it jokingly, but it's a hundred percent true. Again, there's a reason why the book title is say less, get more. There's two things that come from that. One is less language is more effective. So you don't want to crowd out your message with language that is going to detract from what it is that you're saying or make you less authoritative. The other is when you just shut up, when you just stop talking, that's where the magic can really happen. If you look confident and you stop talking, they're going to go, "Uh oh, I guess I need to fill that space right now. And one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to talk themselves out of a deal and start negotiating against themselves, which I see happen frequently, or they're going to give you valuable information, which is going to help you find a solution to help you both move forward. But if you're the one always doing the talking and filling that space, then you're likely going to be the the one giving away far too much information and you're not giving them an opportunity for any airtime. So you're also allowing your brain at the same time to take a breather. Mm -hmm. You're allowing your brain to get that rational thought to come back in, to give yourself the opportunity to go, hey, I'm excited or whatever it is. But when we take those moments of pause, it helps us calm down and alleviate some of that stress. And that just makes us better performers as well. That's awesome. Um, here's a question getting, um, oh, I'm going to put into the chat here, the uh, link to get the book. It's coming out. When is your, your book's coming out soon? April 20th, just around the corner. Oops, sorry. Wrong thing. Um, the, um, any other things you're doing to promote this book? Well, we're trying to come up with some new ideas to engage the public, because quite frankly, I never envisioned I'd be doing a book launch, not in a bookstore (laughs) or not with live events. Um, So there there's a contest right now going on that if you pre-order and if you send you a proof of purchase to say less, get more book at gmail.com, you'll be entered into a contest for a free one-on-one coaching session um, with me, which I don't do very often. So there's one of three uh, one-on-one coaching sessions available in that, that contest. And that's a $500 value. Um, those types of coaching sessions are when people talk to me about an upcoming, upcoming salary negotiation or something with their boss, or maybe even trying to negotiate their vacation time with their spouse or where they're going to go next, whatever the oh, challenge yeah. is. Um, and so that's one of the things we'll have some book giveaways coming up as well on Instagram and on LinkedIn. And I'm trying to find an opportunity, the right opportunity rather to do a, a public workshop for folks, for people who are super interested, still working on that one to find the right solution for everybody. Um, but yeah, but stay tuned in the meantime, if you follow on my social medias, there'll be more announcements to come. If you could go back to when you were starting out seven years ago, when you accidentally on purpose, blah, 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 came into entrepreneurship in your, what have you learned along the way that you said, if I had, I wish I could have read this book, or I wish I could have seen this Ted talk, or I could have, what do you wish you had known seven years ago? Oh, that's a really tough one. Um, I mean, I see everything as a learning opportunity. I'd say attitude is everything. Mm. And I spent a lot of time worrying unnecessarily. And so if I could go back in time and say to, you know, the Fotini who was starting out, if you, it's almost like another replication of that I'm excited moment. If you can tell yourself it's going to be okay, you'll spend a lot less of that energy worrying and a lot more of it working on being productive. Like I do think that there's, there's power in manifesting. And I think there's power in positive mantras and, and all of those things that come along um, with 
positive thinking. And so you have to have some substance behind it as well. You have to put the yeah. energy behind it too. But I would say, I would tell myself that less worry, more energy. On looking forward and getting stuff done. Yeah, on being productive. That's awesome. Well, I'd like to take this opportunity now to open up the floor. Uh, does uh, anyone have a question for Fertini? Carolyn, go. Hi. Uh, I've actually heard you on Andrea Jansen's podcast before. She's a friend of lives around the corner. Um, so she's the one that actually told me about your existence and how amazing you were. So, um, yeah, very enjoyable. But um, my question is about the differences between like women negotiating with other women versus men negotiating with other men and then kind of the, those various kind of uh, iterations because I've had a lot of dealings uh, working with a lot of older men who are very condescending and all but like pat me on the head. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just curious if you have any insight or uh, stats or anything like that in, about that kind of scenario. Yeah, I don't recall the exact stats, but the reality is, generally speaking, women are treated differently in negotiation by both men and women. So at a subconscious level, even women will receive uh, negotiation proposals from other women just the, the same way that uh, that an older white male would. There's for some reason, there's still this subconscious. I mean, we're, we're almost stuck in the 1950s, in a sense, in terms of getting people to recognize that we deserve to get what we want. It's okay for us to ask for more. And so, and so I know what we're changing, but the implicit bias still exists from all denominations. It's not, it's not one category that treats us differently. It's unfortunately all of them. However, I am far more optimistic that we are changing far more rapidly. And the reason for that is the more role models we have of seeing other people do it, the more we normalize it, right? So 20 years ago, a family with dual income would have been absurd and we would have been going, why are they, who, what? They're at daycare? Who's taking their kids to daycare? It was bizarre, but now it's a normal thing to expect people to take their kids to daycare and have that dual income household. And 20 years ago, when I was, um, I guess I was still in school, but when I was coming out of school, I would say the attitude was for women, there was only one spot at the table. So if you were going into the corporate world, there wasn't a lot of seats for um, for women in those boardrooms. And they were kind of elbowing each other out of the way going, if there's only going to be one seat, I'm going to make sure it's mine. So it was a very competitive environment for women in the business world. Whereas today, I do see the attitude shifting. I see it in my generation and I see it in the generation coming up right behind me. And they're going, one seat. No, let's find more seats. Let's pull up more chairs to the table. So because that attitude is shifting and because we're seeing more role models of multiple women and we're seeing more role models of people like me and others who are writing these books and coming out with the, these ideas, it's just taking us a longer time to catch up. So I know that the stats aren't phenomenal today, but they are better than they were yesterday and they're getting better every single day. Like I had a wait list longer than most of my peers um, in when I was teaching in academia because I had so many women going, I want to learn from her. If she's the one that managed to get Walmart to listen to her, I want to hear from her. I want somebody who looks like me. I want someone who sounds like me. I want someone who has a funny name like I do. And so when we start to normalize those role models, the rest does start to, to change. It just takes a while to catch up. So unfortunately, I would say right now, you're still, you're facing the same uphill battle, whether you're negotiating with a woman or a man. Um, but the tools and tactics that hopefully I'm giving you in this book will make that a little bit easier and it's only going to get easier from here. Cool. Thank you. 
Awesome. Is there one tip that Carolyn could use uh, in her next negotiation that would help her not feel that way? Um, I would say the one tip that I think works best for, I tend to harp on it most for my female audiences, but it, it is for general audiences, but I think it's extra important for women is the likability factor. And so generally speaking, men can get away with not being liked in negotiation. They are forgiven for not being likable in negotiation. Women aren't as easily forgiven. And when it comes to persuasion and influencing science, behavioral science, what we know is too often the big mistake that I see people making in negotiation is they try to, what I call, buy their likability. So it's, I'm just going to do that thing that they want, that last concession, because I don't want them to hate me, right? It's fitting, it's not, it's, it's not pissing them off because I know they're going to treat me differently. I'm fearful of them pulling the offer or rescinding or treating me differently. Therefore, I'll just give in to that last demand. Rather than do that, what I would love to have people do is before the negotiation starts, that's when you should be working on the likability factor. So there's a really interesting study that I talk about all the time. And they, um, they took two groups of uh, MBA students from Ivy League schools and they told the one group, get down, to, get down to negotiating right away, get down to business immediately. And they told the second group, spend a few minutes getting to know each other first. And the first group who got, to, got down to business right away, 55% of them managed to close a deal. Now that's not too bad. But the second group who started negotiating after getting to know each other for a few minutes, 90% of them managed to close a deal. And so some people might be thinking, oh, sure, well, they got to know each other. They liked each other. That's why they gave them whatever they wanted just to be able to close the deal. But that's not true. What actually happened was they not only closed more deals, they closed better deals. They closed deals that were 12% greater in value than the other group. And that's all because they spent those few minutes at the very beginning getting to know each other first. That's the likability factor. So stop worrying about the likability while you're making proposals. Think about it in advance and then stop overcompensating afterwards. Spend that few minutes getting to know them, finding something in common with them, asking them questions to make you look interested in acknowledging them. And then when it comes down to the negotiation, don't back off of your proposals. Go ahead and feel like they want to work with me. There's a reason why we're here right now. And the, the studies and the data shows that. So do the likability factor first and then stop backing off of those proposals later. How do you know when to draw the line between backing off because you're conceding for the wrong reasons or that it's important to do that to get the, the negotiation continue to move along? So that's where I'd say finding your moment of pause is going to be really important. I talk about our mental pause button. And when we're faced with stress, what happens is all of the rational energy leaves our brain and it goes to our limbs and our, and our other extremities. And that's why your heart starts to beat a little faster. And that's why your breath gets more shallow. And that's why your palms start to get sweaty. But if you could say less and get more for a moment, if you can pause before anything comes out of your mouth again, just take a deep breath. And then that'll give the rational thought a chance to come back into your brain. And that's when you can go challenge yourself and go, why am I doing this right now? Am I doing this because I'm uncomfortable or am I doing this because I do, I truly think that this will move the negotiation forward. And instead of backing off of that proposal, what if you paused and instead of making another proposal or making a concession, what if you paused and asked a question okay. and got them to do a little bit more talking versus continuously rapid fire coming out with one proposal or one concession after another. So break it up a little bit and slow it down. And it's that say less, get more, say less in the form of quietness, say less in the form of ask questions and get them to do more talking. And you'll find that you'll get much better results. 
Oh, that's amazing. Uh, okay, another question. Christina, do you have a question? Nope. Oh, good. All right. Well, I still have a couple more questions then. And I would like to know. Um, it seems like you were born to be a negotiator, but it took a little while to get there. And we, you talked a little bit about what is a win for you and that type of thing. So do you have a big, hairy, audacious goal? You know, I've been thinking about this for a while because I feel like I keep hitting these goals that I didn't have, right? So, <laughs> you know, the, the book was great. It was amazing. At some point, you know, years ago, I thought maybe someday I'll do a book proposal, but it kind of found me before I had a chance to find it. Um, so I'd say the big, hairy, audacious goal is to get it into the hands of as many people as possible. Mm. Um, and it, that, that for me doesn't have to be a quick thing. It was, it's something about, I don't, I don't know what the number is because quite frankly, I don't understand the stats behind book sales just yet. Um, but it is, it's going, how can I get it into the hands of as many people as possible? Um, there's, there's no real... I mean, I tell people all the time to have an objective when they go into negotiation. I never really had an objective when I went into self-employment. Um, and so maybe I need to spend a little bit more time formulating one of those. But right now it's going, how do I get to more and more people to know about this book and pick it up? I mean, maybe I should make my goal to get X number of success stories in my inbox. I'm not sure, but there's there's something there that I need to, to play with a little bit more. Okay, good. Um, uh, Kelsey has a question for you. Thank you. This is great. I really enjoyed your uh, mental pause button as well. I hadn't heard it succinctly uh, mentioned like that. Um, so for me, it's always a question is because I uh, do a lot of negotiations as well uh, as we all do. But you also know you get to a point that you just don't want to talk to this person anymore because it's there's no mutual benefit. Um, what's a very polite way of saying goodbye? But always leaving the door open, not closing it. But it's just one of those ones that it's like, unless they, if, especially if they're being super unreasonable, to kind of plant that little seed to say, listen, if you're not going to come to reality, don't ever talk to me again. But yeah, you know, is there a, any language around there to tell that politely? Sure. I mean, I always advocate for diplomacy intact. I never, I, I never encourage people to be rude. I don't think you need to do anything with an iron fist. Uh, in negotiation. I learned that from personal experience that you can get what you want and still be polite and diplomatic. That doesn't mean I'm going to be warm and fuzzy and start holding hands and singing kumbaya, but it does mean that um, I can be quite firm and still be polite. And so I'd say in those circumstances, it would be something like that doesn't suit my needs right now, but should you change your budgets in the future or should you, you know, should that change, you're more than welcome to reach out. Cause I have people giving me ridiculous proposals all the time, or I have people asking me for ridiculous things all the time. And I'll say something like, you know what, that's not in my, my capabilities at the moment, but should that change, I'll be sure to reach out or, you know, and the, on the flip side, if they're asking for something way too much, then I would say something quite similar and go, that doesn't fit my budget. If your budgets or if the way you work or your proposals change in the future, you're more than welcome to, to reach out to me again. You, so you can kind of tie a bow on it and go, hey, when circumstances change or if they change, then I'm open to conversation again. But clearly under these circumstances, that's not an opportunity for us. Perfect. Thank you. Great question. Sure. Uh, we have uh, Christina next. Christina, you have a question. I do. Hi, thank you. I'm really enjoying this uh, 
this discussion. Um, I am, um, I work with parents um, around issues of education at home. Mm -hmm. And I guess my job is to teach them to do what you are talking about. It's to teach them to um, not only, uh, not only, I guess, negotiate, but also have have the background knowledge enough to know when to negotiate and when and when not to and, and to understand the subtleties of communicating with a child yeah and i wonder i wonder where it's a it's a very fine balance for me i, I in in giving them sort of too much information or or not enough it, just in terms of education and learning and and how it's done and um and i wonder if you could just talk on that on on the how, 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 like the learning and the education and the background to the negotiation fits in. Does that make sense? I'm not sure I entirely understand your question. If you could rephrase it, that would be helpful. Sure. Okay. So, um, I'm, I'm teaching parents to negotiate with kids yeah. and also teaching them when to, and when not to, and okay. for them to make negotiation decisions with their children they need to have a body of knowledge to understand things better right and so it's that it's that body of knowledge that that sort of interests me how much how much knowledge you you share in order to to, to help someone else to negotiate better like just yeah so i mean it's it's really your question is as as an educator you know how to give them just enough and not overwhelm them if I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah. So I guess that's, yeah, sure. And I'm just in a learning posture. I'm, I'm trying to gather as much information on how to do that better. Um, so anything you have to share on that would be great. Yeah. I mean, this comes from somebody who, when I'm running workshops and stuff, I make people drink from the fire hose. <laughs> so, um, so take this tell me what you mean by that. What, what do well, you mean by I that? give people so much information. I know they're only going to catch a few drops despite how much I'm dumping on them. Um, so that is, um, that's always a challenge when it comes to teaching in general. What I found is I've become much more effective at it when I give less. So, you know, I might do a keynote for 45 minutes and I just keep stripping it down and stripping it down and stripping it down. And it, the keynote doesn't get any shorter. It's the same 45 minutes, but I'm now using those, I'm, I'm doing fewer lessons in that amount of time and people are retaining it better. So from a learning perspective, even the book, the book started out as 100,000 words and we chopped it down to 80,000. And I was very precious about every single paragraph that we cut. Yeah. But at some point I went, do they need this right now? Or would I rather have them focus on this other part? Because that the rest of it is now going to be a distraction. So the mantra of say less, get more seems to apply itself in so many ways, right? So I can say less and give that breathing room and those pauses for people to absorb it in that same amount of 45 minutes. And they're actually going to retain more of what it is that I'm telling them versus trying to compact everything. Cause my, when I first started out, when I first started teaching many years ago, I just wanted to go, I want to give them everything. I want to tell them everything that I know, but the truth is their brain gets overwhelmed. So from yes. a pedagogical standpoint, from an educational standpoint, they just can't retain everything. So I'd say, mm -hmm. focus on the fewest lessons and give that breathing room for them to digest it and ask you questions and reapply it. Um, even when I'm teaching, now, yesterday at the end of um, at the end of our workshop, I had a six hour day with folks on Zoom and I give lots of breaks in between because I know yes. that you can't go six hours straight on camera. 
that's just not going to happen. But at the end of it, I also um, left enough space to go, okay, now it's time for questions. I don't want to give you more. I want to talk about what we already have. Do you really understand it? Are there other questions? So give that space for play a little bit in their brains. Right on. That's excellent educational theory, by the way. I have two other brief questions. Um, How long did it take you to get from like the heavy front loading to the realization that, ah, okay, here's what they actually need. Like when you fine tune your product almost, do you fine tune your present? That's an ongoing process for me. Two Um, years, was it 10 years? No, that's, that's a continuous improvement thing. So (laughs) I would say even now I've I've been running workshops for over a decade and I've been doing virtual workshops for the last year. In fact, I did webinars before that. So every single Mm -hmm. time I do one, I think back and I go, what could be better? Because I know we're not perfect. I don't think anybody is, should be perfect. And I don't think we should hold ourselves to that standard, but I'm always doing continuous improvement to go, what could be better? So I know, even if I wrote this book today, I finished writing the book over a year ago was February, 2020, that I actually wrote the last sentence in the book. And we went through some editing processes, but really fine tuning editing, not, not cutting out chapters editing. Um, if I were to write that book today, it would be a much shorter book, um, <laughs> right. even though I still love everything in it. I think I would. And my next book, if I, if I finally write one will be le- a lot less than 80,000 words. So I'm constantly refining. And even in that, um, even the workshop I ran last week, it's different than the one I ran a few months ago. I cut out an entire case, which is like, you know, an hour of learning and I didn't shorten the day anymore. I just went we're going to spend more time learning what we have instead of adding more lessons onto this. And I actually yes. think it's a better product every single time I do it. Right on. I'll save my question because I see other people have questions too. So if you don't mind coming back to me, Wendy, I have one more question. Yeah. Perfect. There's, there's one book I would recommend to you in your specific field that you might find really interesting called the coddling of the American mind. Um, and that is ridiculous amounts of insights about why our generation or millennials and generation Z are performing it the way they do and why people behave the way they do. Cause I'm a student of, of human behavior. And that would be really interesting for you and your, your group. For sure. Okay. Going over to Neil, Neil, you are uh, on the show. Go Neil. Oh, he's in his car. Good morning. Um, I've been listening as I've been negotiating with uh, our kids to get them out the door so uh i don't know if i missed uh, this question already being asked you already talking about this but i'm wondering about um negotiating with yourself uh like i, I find that's the place that i have the most struggles is sort of like you know over committing or you know you know doing doing too many things and i i try to push myself to stop and then reevaluate the agreements i made with myself and then kind of reframe them, renegotiate them where I can. Um, but I struggle with it and I just don't know, uh, do you have any tips on how to do that? Like when you're, when you're negotiating with yourself it feels like completely different. So I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I, you're, not, you're not alone. I mean, that, that phrase I negotiate with myself comes up all the time in all of the, the workshops and all of the work that I do. And I'd say the principles of what you do with others work in that same circumstance. So when we talk about negotiating with others, I mean, I did talk earlier about knowing what you want to get out of it and knowing what they want to get out of it. We also talk about um, what we call breakpoints or guideposts in in negotiation. So what is, before you go into a negotiation with somebody else, you need to know what is the lowest that you would do or what was the highest that, that, that you would do. You don't want to decide when you go to the car dealership 
when you're going to buy a car, for example, you want to know before you go there, what is the maximum I'm willing to spend on this car? You don't want to make that decision when you're in the moment because you're going to get caught up in the momentum and do something you're going to regret. You're going to go, oh, why did I pay that much? If you can think about that in advance, you take the pressure off and you go, I, when I was of rational mind before the adrenaline was kicking in, I made this decision and I'm going to stick to it because that was when I was at my smartest, not when I was under the most pressure. And so we force people in negotiation to come up with those boundaries before the negotiation starts. When it comes to your own personal negotiations, I would say use that same mentality. So if you sit down with yourself and if you're making goals for the day, for the month, for the year, whatever it is, and go, what are the boundaries that I'm going to create for myself? create them and make a plan at the outset so that when you get caught up in that momentum, you can go, wait a second, what is it that I said that I wanted to do? What are those boundaries that I said? So if you can come up with those things, when you can pause your mind, when things are quiet in your brain and you can think of those things, then that becomes your roadmap for everything you do afterwards. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. You know, many years ago, unfortunately, I was in some litigation with a former employer and I had to hire a discrimination lawyer. I had, it, it was a whole thing and it took a very long time to resolve. And I had said to her at the very beginning of it, she said, what do you wanna get out of this? And I said, I just want them out of my life. I don't wanna ever deal with them again. I'm not chasing money. I don't wanna come out of pocket, but I don't want, I'm not trying to get millions of dollars out of these people. I just want to never have to deal with them again. And when we finally made it down the path of mediation and, and getting to a resolution, I was getting really angry with them in that process. It was a very emotional thing, as controlled as I'd like to be. She had to pause and go, remember what you told me that you wanted at the beginning of this? And she said, you told me you wanted them out of your life. If you can go down two roads, you can keep going at this if, you, if you're upset and so on, and, and we can keep chasing it for the next year and a half, because that's how long these things are going to take in the Canadian court system. Or you can resolve this today and you won't be out of pocket and you won't have to worry about those things and they're finally going to be out of your life. Which of those two options works best for you? She had to remind me of the boundaries that I set for myself. And, and she was wonderful at her job because she asked me those boundaries at the very beginning. Like, what is your objective? Yeah. So I would say for you, it's going, what are my objectives every single day in this business? What are my objectives in my daily routine and my weekly routine and so on? And so if you can have a moment of pause every so often when you're getting caught up in the moment, momentum and go, hey, wait a second, what are those, those objectives that I said I was going to have? Because it's so easy to get carried away in the moment. Um, and I'd say that that for me has helped to create some boundaries as well, because if I make a rule for myself of I'm not going to work on weekends or I'm not going to open my my emails after 11 p.m. When I'm doing it at 1101, I'm going to go, oh, wait a second. I said I wasn't going to do this. It's time to shut it down. But if I never set that boundary from the beginning, I'm just going to get carried away and keep doing it. OK, to so be very clear early on makes, makes it a lot easier. OK, thank you. Yeah, I hope that helps. It does. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Neil. Um, um, when it comes to uh, writing a book, Fatini, uh, your book, and you wrote 100,000 words, what was your process? Did you write so much every day? Did you block off time? Did you focus on it ex on only that? Um, it was really hard to do a certain number of words every day because I was writing it while I was working full time. So um, I work best under deadlines. <laughs> so I kind of um, I needed to ask my editor to make me go, okay, when is this due? And then I would like, whether it's one piece of it or whatever. Um, and that didn't really work because they, they were kind of, there was no real structure to it. They were like, oh, you're ahead of the curve. Don't worry. And then it, it then all of a sudden I wasn't ahead of the curve. <laughs> what I found was 
Um, what I found was for me, I know my working works. I, I know that I need to work in flow. I am not that person who gets who can work in fits and spurts. So 20, finding 20 minutes here and there to write a few words just doesn't work for me. And so what I found was my process was I actually would block Saturday afternoons and evenings. Um, and I would say, I'm going to go into a coffee shop where I don't have the temptation. Now that's not an option, obviously with COVID. So I'm actually quite glad that I wrote this pre-COVID. Um, but it was, it was, I'm going to go somewhere where I don't have the option to distract myself with television or with laundry or any of those things. And it would be a time of day where I knew I wasn't going to get a ton of notifications coming in over email as well. So even today, I find when I'm working on a big presentation or when I'm working on something that's going to require X number of hours, I do it at a time where I know I'm going to be in flow. And so evenings and weekends are really where I managed to do that. And I was writing this book while I was teaching on Monday nights, while I was flying on planes and jumping around everywhere. So I found some of the times where, where I worked best was on a longer flight. If I was yeah. traveling into the US and it was going to be more than a one hour flight, I knew I'd get a two hour block done. I knew I'd get a Saturday afternoon done. I would make plans for a Saturday night knowing I had a deadline. I was only going to get so many hours in the day, so I need to be up against that deadline versus dragging it out. Um, but that for me is, I, the flow for me was really, really important. Wonderful. Well, Fatini, we're at time, and I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. I have to say, I learned a ton about negotiation, and I feel like the bottom line is get excited and then shut up. Yes, <laughs> those are great <laughs> takeaways. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Fatini. Have a great one. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Real Bottom Line. This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com. <laughs>